Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 21, Daniel, chapter 7, the conclusion. The Son of Man. Who would have thought? That such an innocuous phrase, one that most Christians and Messianics have heard countless times, could have so much impact on our faith and on our understanding of God's Word. This is going to be our third week that we've been in Daniel chapter 7. But we'll finish it up and we'll move on to chapter 8. And while I know that we've spent a lot of time on this subject of the Son of Man, I think it is one of the most profoundly important theological concepts in the Bible and ironically one of the least discussed so we'll spend a bit more time today to wrap up some loose ends and we'll begin by seeing if we can just kind of summarize what we've learned up to now we need to exit Daniel chapter 7 with this firm understanding it is here it's in the book of Daniel that the concept of a unique being that is both human and divine is brought forth and it's given a title. And while one might say that the concept of heavenly angels is similar in that they were a spiritual being that could apparently adopt the form of a human to one degree or another, they were merely holy as opposed to divine. So the Son of Man, as being closely associated with God, being given divine status by the Ancient of Days, and whose essence was both human and divine, was new with the book of Daniel. What could be more important to the Jewish and Christian faith systems than understanding the origin and the impact of the Son of Man? Everything it entails in God's plan of redemption. See, it's a premise of Seed of Abraham and Torah class that one cannot possibly correctly understand the New Testament without first understanding the Old Testament and doing so within the cultural context of the people who wrote the Bible. The Son of Man concept that is born and explained in Daniel is proof positive of this premise. Yeshua offers no explanation of the Son of Man. He merely claims it for himself. Further, despite what you might have heard in synagogues and in churches, Yeshua referring to himself in the Gospels as the Son of Man was not a warm and friendly reminder to his followers of his humanity so that his followers could identify with him as one of them more easily. Rather, it was to signify his deity, his unmatched authority, And yet, it was meant to accomplish something else as well. The Son of Man was not a brand new title that Yeshua invented. Nor was it pulled off of a dusty shelf and used because it was kind of catchy. Rather, he put on the mantle of that title because he was precisely the one like the Son of Man that Daniel had shown in his vision. Yeshua was Daniel's prophesied Son of Man. And by Christ using that title, the Jews of his day knew exactly what was signified by it. Yeshua was saying loud and clear, He was not only the divinely appointed successor to David's dynasty as the Messiah, the next king of Israel, but that he was also divine. And this fulfilled the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. We also learned that ancient records within Judaism, including the Talmud, prove beyond doubt that the concept of a Hebrew God-man who would come as Israel's redeemer 
was deeply embedded in mainstream Judaism and and Jewish thought, and it was accepted by the Jewish religious leadership. This was not a fringe idea. It wasn't radical. It wasn't heretical theology within Judaism, nor did Jesus introduce it. It was something that a large segment of the Jewish population expected. Then they embraced it when Yeshua did enough to convince them that indeed He was that God-man of Daniel's vision. See, this explains why so many tens and scores of thousands of Jews rather quickly embraced Yeshua as that divine Messiah that He said He was. And as we're told in Acts 21.20, These were no ordinary Jews that were accepting Him. The tens of thousands that this verse speaks of were Judeans. They were those Jews who lived at or near the center of Jewish religious practice and teaching in Jerusalem. Even more, they were well educated in the Scriptures because the verse concludes, and they were all zealous for the Torah. It was that zealousness and that knowledge that led them to trust Yeshua. Not merely because He was some exceptional faith healer. So these throngs of Judean Jews who believed that Yeshua was Daniel's Son of Man understood what those attributes must be to qualify Him to hold that title and Christ fulfilled those qualifications. At least in their eyes He did. Now next we looked at a couple of well-known New Testament incidents recorded in Mark chapter 2 involving Yeshua and some local Torah teachers who sought to challenge His claims and His actions. The first concerned Him offering forgiveness of sins to a paralytic. The second concerned His seeming lack of concern over His hungry disciples plucking grains of wheat and then eating them on a Sabbath. In both cases, He invoked His authority on account of He was the Son of Man. And in connection with Yeshua's Sabbath debate with some Pharisees, we even spent a few minutes examining an interesting debate among some revered and well-known rabbis over the issue of saving a life on Sabbath and whether it ought to be done or not. And if it was done, did it violate God's Shabbat commandment? And what we found out was that in general, there was a number of circumstances whereby these renowned rabbis determined that strict observance of Shabbat could be superseded. But those instances all involved saving life to one degree or another. What was even more interesting is that one of those rabbis rationale for it being better to trespass the Sabbath rules to save a life than to allow life to be damaged or even lost in order to be scrupulously Sabbath observant was that God didn't make man for the Sabbath. Rather, He made Sabbath for man. Thus, all in all, we find that most of Yeshua's teachings and claims were not new. They were not unique within Judaism, although some probably were. Further, that modern Judaism's accusation against Christianity in general, and the reason that they will not consider Yeshua as a valid candidate for Messiah, is that Jesus' worship is considered idolatry. Because they say, you worship a God-man. This turns out to be disingenuous because in fact Judaism of 2,000 years ago fully expected the Messiah to be a God-man because that's what Daniel envisioned even if their expectation wasn't unanimous. See, one of the goals 
of our Son of Man study is to straighten out some misconceptions about what it was that Yeshua did that so riled up various groups of Jews and also raised the ire of their Roman governors. So let's take a look at a few more New Testament passages that frames Christ as the Son of Man but also involves other terms that we have more thoroughly defined namely Messiah and the Son of God so let's look again at the book of Mark turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14 Mark chapter 14 it's a long chapter we're going to start at verse 55 so if you have a complete Jewish Bible that's page 1283 Mark 14 starting at verse 55 The head Kohanim, head priest, and the whole Sanhedrin tried to find evidence against Yeshua so that they might have him put to death, but they couldn't find any. For many people gave false evidence against him, but their testimonies didn't agree. Some stood up and gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I'll destroy the temple with my hand, with hands, made with hands, and in three days I'll build up another one not made with hands. Even so, their testimonies didn't agree. The Kohen Haggadol, the high priest, stood up in front and asked Yeshua, Have you nothing to say to the accusations that these men are making? But he remained silent. He made no reply. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Mashiach, Ben-Ha-Morakah, son of the Blessed One? I am, answered Yeshua. Moreover, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of Ha-Gavurah, coming on the clouds of heaven. And at this, the high priest tore his clothes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You've heard him blaspheme. What's your decision? They all declared him guilty, subject to the death penalty. The question put to Yeshua was this. Are you the Messiah, Son of the Blessed One, another name for God, the Son of God, and notice from our previous two lessons on Daniel 7 that the high priest included two critical but entirely separate elements in his question. First, are you Messiah? Second, are you the Son of God? What this meant was, first, are you the Anointed One? Are you the one who's claiming to be this new kingly leader of the Jews? And second, by saying, are you the Son of God, he meant, are you of the royal line of David? That's what he was establishing. So, the Kohen Haggadol's question, the high priest's question to this point, is strictly a political one. Are you claiming to be the prophesied new king of Israel who comes from King David's dynasty? Yeshua answers, I am. No reaction just yet from the high priest. But then... Yeshua unexpectedly throws in a whole new element to the controversy by recalling the precise description of the Son of Man as found in Daniel and claiming He is the Son of Man. At that, the high priest goes ballistic. He calls that claim blasphemy. He says, nothing more is needed to put Jesus to death. See, it's the Son of Man claim that's the issue. Not the claim as being Messiah or even Son of God because the high priest understands that by Christ saying He's the Son of Man, He's claiming He is God. And the punishment for blasphemy is death. Let's look at another New Testament story of Yeshua. This one is in the book of John. John in chapter 9. John chapter 9. We're going to jump around just a little bit. 
to get the main elements of this story so we don't spend too much time with it John chapter 9 will be it'll be uh, page 1342 if you have a complete Jewish Bible we're going to read 13 and then 18 through 25 and then 31 through 38 verse 13 of chapter 9 they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees now jumping down to 18 the Judeans however were unwilling to believe that he had formerly been blind but could now see until they summoned the man's parents they asked him is this your son who you say was born blind how, how is it that now he can see his parents answered well we know that this is our son and that he was born blind but how it is that he can see now we don't know nor do we know who opened his eyes ask him he's old enough he can speak for himself and the parents said this because they were afraid of the Judeans because the Judeans had already agreed that anybody who acknowledged Yeshua as the Messiah would be banned from the synagogue this is why his parents said he's old enough ask him so a second time they called the man who had been blind and they said to him swear to God that you will tell the truth because we know this man's a sinner and he answered well whether he's a sinner or not I don't know one thing I do know I was blind and now I see moving down to verse 31 we know that God doesn't listen to sinners but if anyone fears God and does his will God does listen to him in all history no one has ever heard of someone's opening the eyes of a man born blind if this man were not from God he couldn't do a, do a thing why you moms there they retorted are you lecturing us so they threw him out Yeshua heard that they had thrown the man out and he found him and he said do you trust in the son of man sir he answered tell me who he is so that I can trust in him Yeshua said to him you've seen him in fact he's the one speaking with you now Lord I trust he said and he kneeled down in front of him the crux of this story is that Yeshua had healed a man born blind and he did it on Shabbat and since the Pharisees had created many rules about Shabbat one being that healing was work and therefore there should be no healing on the Sabbath so from their perspective Yeshua was a sinner for healing this man on Shabbat even more they were skeptical that any healing had actually occurred it must have been some kind of a trick since no healer had ever healed someone who was born blind the healed man insisted it was so his parents verified it and the newly sighted man argued for Yeshua and against these Pharisees who finally kicked him out we're told probably meaning out of the synagogue now notice that in verse 22 an edict was decreed that anyone who acknowledged Yeshua as Messiah was to be banned from this particular synagogue but that banning was only because of the political consideration that they didn't accept that Yeshua could be that new king that Messiah that they had been hoping for now that the man who was healed believed that his healer was the Messiah that new king well he too has been banned from the synagogue well then in verse 35 Yeshua asked the man healed of his blindness if he trusted the son of man and the man said absolutely by the way you got any idea who that is in other words this common Jew born blind he well knew of Daniel's son of man he knew he was divine but he didn't realize 
that the one who had just healed him, Yeshua, was that Son of Man. Yeshua says, you've seen him. He is the one speaking to you now. The man bows before Yeshua, believing that he is Daniel's Son of Man. Let's read just one more and we'll move on. Turn your Bibles to Revelation. Revelation chapter 14. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1546. Revelation chapter 14. I'm going to read just a few verses from 13 through 16. Revelation 14, starting at verse 13. Next I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, how blessed are the dead who die united with the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, now they may rest from their efforts, for the things they have accomplished follow along with them. Then I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was someone like a son of man, with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Start using your sickle to reap, because the time to reap has come. The earth's harvest is ripe. And the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. So here again, we have this precise description offered in Daniel of one like a son of man who's coming in the clouds. This, of course, is the returning Yeshua who has consistently called himself the Son of Man throughout the Gospels. And the Son of Man has come to reap, to harvest, that final harvest of believers before the end. And by the way, this final harvest will, I'm completely convinced of it, coincide with and fulfill the prophetic feast of Sukkot, the seventh and final biblical feast, which is also called the Feast of Final Ingathering. And I pray now that over the past three weeks, I've achieved the goal of showing you that Daniel's direct Influence is front and center throughout the Gospels and even on into the book of Revelation. And it especially shows itself in this constant mention of the Son of Man, as I mentioned, some 80 plus times. And Yeshua believed himself to be, he openly claimed that he was Daniel's Son of Man. So, If it is accepted, as is the common mindset among among modern, modern Bible academia and has been adopted by a large segment of unwitting modern Christian pastors, that the book of Daniel is a Jewish work of fiction and that it was written 350 years or so after the time it claims to have been written, and that the visions and the prophetic events contained in it are contrived and false, and that this mysterious Son of Man is just a creation of the author, then Jesus Christ is at best a delusional religious nut. Or at worst, a deceiver. A liar of the first degree. And even more, the New Testament is no more inspired scripture than is the Left Behind book series. However, as I spent much time proving to you in our introduction to Daniel, those who make such arrogant and false claims against the book of Daniel have utterly no proof whatsoever to back it up. They rely only on their own speculations and love of their own intellect. But what underlies their unshakable belief that Daniel cannot be true is their equally unshakable belief that there is no such thing as predictive prophecy. It can't exist. There is no such thing as divine miracles. It's all explainable. There is no such thing as spirit. It's myth. For them, the Bible is history, legend, and myth. 
Therefore, on its face, Daniel can't possibly be genuine. That's their viewpoint. So now, you have a decision to make. Pretty serious one. You can't just pretend you don't know. You can't try to find some middle ground on this issue of Daniel because you know what? There isn't any. If Daniel's false, then so is Christ because they're so intertwined by that Son of Man concept. If Christ is false, then so is the New Testament because the promises and the hope of the New Testament depends upon a real, true, divine Messiah who bears the attributes of Daniel, Son of Man. And if Daniel and Christ and the New Testament are false, then we indeed have been duped. And we are alone. We have no hope. And we have no salvation. Here's the good news. Daniel's true. Everything predicted in it has come true and what hasn't yet is still future and it's in process. Christ is who He says He is. And it's proved by His resurrection from the dead and His ascension into heaven that was witnessed and attested to by many. And the New Testament is true because historically, spiritually, and factually the test of time has proved it to be true and accurate without apology, without fail, and without any need for revision over all these centuries. Ah, but there's so much more left to discover in the book of Daniel, so let's move on. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to start at verse 15. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 15. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's the top of page 1110. As for me, Daniel... My spirit deep within me was troubled. The visions in my head frightened me. I approached one of those standing by and asked him what all this really meant. He said he'd make me understand how to interpret these things. Those four huge animals are four kingdoms that will arise on earth. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know what that fourth beast meant, the one that was different from all the others, so very terrifying, with iron teeth and bronze nails which devoured and crushed and stamped its feet on what was left, and what the ten horns on its head meant, and and that other horn which sprang up and before which three fell the horn that had eyes and a mouth speaking arrogantly and seemed greater than the others and I watched and that horn made war with the holy ones and was winning until the ancient one came judgment was given in favor then of the holy ones of the most high and the time came for the holy ones to take over the kingdom this is what he said the fourth animal will be a fourth kingdom on earth It will be different from the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down and crush it. And as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. And yet another will arise after them. Now he will be different from the earlier ones. And he will put down three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and try to exhaust the Holy Ones. He will attempt to alter the seasons and the law. And the holy ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But when the court goes into session, he'll be completely stripped of his rulership, which will be consumed and completely destroyed. And then the kingdom, the rulership, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. Their kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will serve and obey them. This is the end of the account. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts frightened me so much that I turned pale. But I kept the matter to myself. The remainder of this chapter 
is mostly about the interpretation of Daniel's vision. And we find that this person in Daniel's vision who says he'll explain it doesn't at all bring about peace to Daniel's soul by what he reveals. Daniel remains perturbed, upset, confused by what he's seen and even by what he's been told. Verse 17, however, is straightforward. The four beasts of our four kingdoms, so we don't have to speculate about Daniel's vision of the beast being parallel of Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue of the four metals. However, what needs a bit of explanation is the term the holy ones. The holy ones of the Most High who will receive the kingdom and possess it forever and ever. Meaning once acquired it never again will change hands. Now how does that square with verse 14 where it explains that it is the Son of Man that will be given a rulership of this kingdom, the same kingdom forever and ever? Quite simply, the Son of Man will be the king and the Holy Ones will be the members of the kingdom. There's just no conflict here. But now comes a divisive issue of the identity of the Holy Ones. Some versions use the word saints. The most common theological answer is that the Holy Ones are the church. And it's an especially rigid position held by certain Christian denominations who uphold what's called replacement theology. But as that wonderful Bible commentator Robert Culver says so positively, the kingdom of the Most High in Daniel 7 is Jewish in some definite sense. So we must again remember that Daniel is operating from a worldview of Jews living in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. What else would the Holy Ones be for Daniel other than for Jews? Or more technically, Hebrews. And what else would the human element of the Son of Man be than a Jewish human? I mean, can we honestly believe that heathen Gentiles would anywhere fit in this Jewish conception? I mean, let us be humble to always remember that the concept of a Messiah, the concept of a Savior, the concept of a holy kingdom of God is purely, uniquely, and only Hebrew. Further, what is always happening in the book of Daniel is this creation of a contrast between the four Gentile world empires symbolized by the statue of four metals and those four beasts versus the eventual one kingdom of God that will replace this succession of Gentile controlled world governments. And this one everlasting kingdom of God will be an ideal kingdom ruled by an ideal king and the kingdom's citizens shall be all that the ideal of Israel embodies. Now let me be clear. Will true believers, Christians and Messianics who worship Yeshua as Messiah be part of this ideal kingdom of God and thus be some of those holy ones of the Most High? Most certainly. But as Paul said in Romans 11, Gentile believers are grafted in to this ideal kingdom. That is essentially a Hebrew kingdom. And that that root supports those Gentile believers. The Gentile believers don't support the root. So from Daniel's perspective, the Holy Ones are only Hebrews. But by means of progressive revelation, we find out later that Gentiles who by faith trust in the God of Israel's Messiah Yeshua can join them. Then verse 19 returns us to the identity of that fourth beast. This is the one that terrifies Daniel the most. 
It's so very different, we're told, from the first three beasts. It's the most terrible of them all. But it is also the final beast before God's everlasting kingdom is brought in. So even though Daniel was, from a historical perspective, living and writing in the days of the first in the series of those four Gentile empires, meaning three more were to come after Babylon, who wouldn't want to know the identity of that fourth kingdom when all hell breaks loose? And it's the final one before the Ancient of Days steps in to end it all. Daniel wanted to know what did those ten horns on the fourth beast's head mean? What was that other horn, that earlier called the little horn, which displaced three of the original ten? But then verse 21 has Daniel reveal a very important detail one that's not so easily dealt with. It is that that little horn is going to war with the holy ones. And that little horn is going to be winning. But then, we're told, the ancient one comes to the rescue. And he judges in favor of his holy ones. Because the time had come for God's holy ones to inherit the kingdom. So from Daniel's perspective, there's going to be a king who is associated in some unspecified way with this fourth Gentile world empire and he is going to war with the Israelites. And this king is going to be winning. Suddenly, the ancient one comes. He disposes of the little horn and God's holy ones are victorious. Now there's a great deal of information here and it has birthed many different end times doctrines. We simply can't cover everything but I'm going to try to hit the high points. First, there is no doubt that this is speaking of a time future to Daniel. And as history has proven, it's still future to us at this point in the 21st century. Within Christianity, this prophecy of Daniel concerning this great war and the Lord coming to bring victory is connected to Zechariah chapter 14. It is a familiar passage, especially to that branch of the church that is typically called evangelical. So, turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 783. 783 in a complete Jewish Bible, Zechariah 14. Follow along with me, please. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. Look, a day is coming for Adonai when your plunder, Jerusalem, will be divided right there within you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for war. The city will be taken. The houses will be rifled. The women will be raped. And half the city will go into exile. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then Adonai will go out and fight against those nations, fighting as on a day of battle. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies to the east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west to make a huge valley. Half of the mountain will move towards the north, half of it towards the south. You will flee to the valley in the mountains, for the valley in the mountains will reach to Atzel. You will flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uziah, king of Judah. Then Adonai my God will come to you with all the holy ones. And on that day there will be neither bright light nor thick darkness. And, uh, and one day, known to God, will be neither day nor night, although by evening there will be light. On that day, fresh water will flow out from Jerusalem, half towards the eastern sea, half towards the western sea, both summer and winter. Then Adonai will be king over the whole world. 
On that day, Adonai will be the only one. And his name will be the only name. It's clear and obvious that Daniel 7 verses 21 and 22 are exactly the same thing that Zechariah is speaking of here. But here's the thing that can become most difficult for us to deal with. Almost without exception, when Zechariah 14 verse 4 says, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, it is said that this is speaking of the return of Yeshua. So it's his feet who touch the mountain. The problem is, Daniel says this figure is who? The Ancient of Days. Hmm. And Zechariah specifically identifies the figure as yud Hey vav Hey Yehoveh. Now pay attention to me, please. Daniel identifies two distinct figures. One older, one younger. So one's called the Ancient of Days. The other's called the Son of Man who is summoned to come before the Ancient of Days, right? We've studied that. Zechariah specifically names the person whose feet touch the Mount of Olives as yud Hey vav Hey, Yehoveh. And nowhere in the Old Testament or New Testament is there a claim that the name of our Messiah is yud Hey vav Hey. His name is Yeshua. Our English translations, you see, mask this reality because where the word Lord is used in your Bible, or if you have a complete Jewish Bible where it says Adonai, the original Hebrew is yud heh God's formal name. It's just that Lord has become such a commonly used title for Jesus that anywhere we see the word Lord in the Bible, modern Christians tend to automatically picture Christ. So we need to be a little bit cautious with this and realize that the general mindset of modern believers about how the end times plays out and who all the players are isn't so clear as it's been portrayed by various church doctrines, commentaries, and especially by novels. And if rigidity and fullest literalness is called for, then the one whose feet touch on the Mount of Olives, the one who comes to intervene and rescue his holy ones is Yehoveh, Yudhevavheh, the Ancient of Days. That's exactly what the Scriptures say. Not Yeshua, the Son of Man, because, again, this is literally what the Scriptures say. Now, I'm not saying I know the answer to this. I'm saying nobody knows the answer to this. However, the Gentile-led so-called New Testament church, generally, not entirely, has substituted Christ for Yehovah to make it work better with certain doctrinal agendas. And I think you can see that that just might not be warranted in this case. Time will tell. Let's skip down to verse 25 as in one way or another. We've already pretty well covered the subject matter of verses 23 and 24. And what I want to focus on is something specific that this little horn does. The little horn is usually thought, by the way, to be the Antichrist, and I fully agree with that. And what he does, we're told, is he attempts to change seasons and law. Some translations use the English word time or times in place of seasons. The Aramaic word used here is zeman, and we've discussed this term before. The word is the equivalent of saying appointed times. It's not a generic term. It doesn't mean any old time. It's not a word that means seasons in the sense of weather, spring, summer, winter, fall. Remembering that this is Daniel's vision, it's coming from a Jewish viewpoint, this can only mean God's biblical festivals and Sabbaths. 
What else can it mean? And law only ever means one thing in association with God and the Hebrew people. The law of Moses. There's no other law. God doesn't have regard for the countless and ever-changing laws of the hundreds of nations that have come and gone. There is and has ever been but one set of immutable laws. God's laws. So what we see is that the Antichrist, the little horn, is going to attempt to do away with or alter the biblical feasts and the Shabbat. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Dear friends, don't trust every spirit. On the contrary, test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Here is how you recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit which acknowledges that Yeshua the Messiah came as a human being is from God. And every spirit which does not acknowledge Yeshua is not from God. In fact, this is the spirit of the anti-Messiah, the Antichrist. You have heard He is coming. Well, He's here now. He's in the world already. John says that while the Antichrist in person may not be here yet, his spirit is. Let me paraphrase this using Daniel's terminology. In fact, this is the spirit of the little horn. You've heard he is coming. Well, he's here now. He's in the world already. So the thought is meant to convey that the spirit of the little horn of the Antichrist will cause people and institutions to go about changing God's ordained biblical feasts and alter or do away with the Sabbath and abolish God's law. Now, has that happened? Of course it has. And so, there are many commentators who have determined that since the abolition of God's law and the changing of Passover to Easter and changing of Shavuot to Pentecost and doing away with Sabbath and the general prejudice against any Jewish holy day meaning biblical feast that is prevalent since the Roman church was created this must mean that the Catholic papal system is the embodiment of the spirit of the Antichrist and that this is what was prophesied by Daniel Let me state I don't agree with that. Among other reasons, if we're going to blame Catholics for this, what excuse do the Protestant or Orthodox branches of Christianity have for doing exactly the same thing? And we can't get around the fact that this verse in Daniel paints it as negative in the extreme for any leader that would choose to change God's appointed times and His laws. So while Christianity, generally but not entirely, has done this, exactly this, for the past 1600 years, it seems as though the little horn, the Antichrist, he, when he comes in person, is going to finally remove all choice in whether anyone on earth can obey God's laws and celebrate His festivals. There will be a one world religion and it's sure not going to include any of the biblically mandated holy days. And since the institutional church has long ago abolished most of these anyway and declared that we can establish any days we want to declare them holy by our own authority change them anytime we choose then I doubt that most Christians will so much as make a peep when the Antichrist does this. Now the Jews, on the other hand, from a personal standpoint, it's exactly what we read here and from other passages that many years ago convinced me that something has to be done 
to right the ship of Christianity. The molten core of Christianity is right and it's in line with God's Word. But some important parts of it are not. And it's succumbed to man-made doctrines just as happened to Judaism. And perhaps the most egregious things that we as Gentile believers have ever done as the body of Christ is to think that we can change or abolish the Sabbath. That we can discard God's ordained holy days and substitute them with ones of our own design and making. And then decide it's God that changed. He has declared His own law as inherently faulty and bad. So we don't have any duty to be obedient to His laws and principles because guess what? They're extinct. I truly believe that despite all of our faults and flaws and with full disclosures that we, and especially I, don't hold all the truth and I can't see the future, the Hebrew Roots movement within the church is a sincere attempt to find our way home. It's a needed effort to reinstate a proper reverence of God, obedience to His commandments, observance of His holy ordained days. As best we can do them in the circumstances under which we live. All the while knowing and declaring that Yeshua is our Savior, He is God, and we can't obey God as we must without Him and without the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to guide us. And further acknowledging our faith was born from the Hebrews and they remain our faith partners and elder brothers and sisters. Daniel ends this account by explaining that the ordeal of this vision literally sickened him. If ever the word bittersweet could be applied, this is the opportunity. Daniel's vision was full of the most vile, violent, blasphemous, terrifying, catastrophic actions brought about by world governments and then a final world leader that was evil personified. Yet, when things are the worst, seemingly beyond hope, God arrives. He reinstates His chosen people and He establishes His kingdom on earth to its fullest and never again will wickedness prevail upon mankind. Daniel decided he could not bear to try and communicate this to anyone. So he kept it to himself. And in time, he simply wrote down what happened. No conclusions, no doctrines, just a mystery. And no doubt a lot of sleepless nights.